0: God, you might deliver I'd like to start with a story that some of you may have heard me tell before. Some time ago I was asked to visit a lady in the Chilliwack hospital dying of cancer. Her husband, a business associate of my cousin's, had asked me to come. I drove out there to Chilliwack um, praying for the stories I'd heard about her. I wasn't sure what kind of reception I would have and I wondered if I could, how I would handle it if she was angry and uh, antagonistic. After some chit-chat, I asked if it would be okay to read some scriptures. And you know what? She gave me permission. It was the first answer to prayer. I don't remember what passage that I read, but when I was done, I shared the gospel just as clearly as I could and asked if she would like to pray. And she said yes. And I led her in a prayer of repentance and asking Jesus to be her Savior. When she had finished, without any hesitation at all, her husband prayed the same prayer. You can believe that I drove back home rejoicing. A month later, her husband asked me to come back and pray with her again. They had moved her out of the hospital into hospice, and so I was glad to go, and after we visited a bit, I asked again if I could read scripture and pray. This time, she quickly and enthusiastically agreed. Afterward, over lunch, her husband thanked me for what he claimed was a miracle, and he shared the rest of the story. His wife was one of 10 children, raced in the prairies of Saskatchewan. Her parents were, quote, very religious, very strict, very harsh. He told me that one by one, each kid walked away as soon as they could, and none of them ever darkened the door of a church again. He went on to say that not one of the 10, including his wife, would even allow anyone to talk about the Bible or Jesus in their presence. They were that bitter. So what went so wrong? I don't know the specific details except the very religious, very strict, very harsh, kind of code words for hypocritical. <laughs> you know, hypocrisy is ugly, and it drove Velma and her siblings away from the Lord. In Valma's case, God was gracious to draw her into relationship with Jesus. Late in her life, through a, through a long bout with cancer, because it was a long one, and no doubt through the loving connection that uh, my cousin and his wife had with her. But sadly, her life was lived apart from God and all the blessings and benefits that he could have given her. Somehow the Christians in her early life had lost all touch with the beauty and wonder of the gospel and the beauty and wonder of grace. And she never saw it in anyone's life. What about your experience? Have you ever known someone and said to yourself, if that's what being a Christian is, I don't want any part of it. I hope you haven't. But I got a feeling that in a group this large, there's some who have. There even may be somebody here who has been deeply hurt in the past, and you're giving the church and Christians another chance. And if so, I sincerely hope that you really experience the love and grace of Jesus through the church, through people's lives. That's my prayer. After reading Galatians 5 and observing people over many years of pastoring, here's what I picture about what happened with Elma's uh, family. First off, they were untaught. They thought they had to be good and keep all the religious rules, especially the ones that were emphasized as important in their church, whatever that might have been. And they found it impossible, because it was impossible. And they became frustrated with themselves, and no doubt with their kids, as they grew older and uh, took more liberties. And they made up for their failure by being rigid and demanding. And their kids quickly saw the hypocrisy of all the demands... And instead of uh, them sharing the beauty of grace and freedom in Christ, they made these demands as parents that no one could keep and no one was interested in keeping. They became so controlling in the process, no doubt, that no one stuck around. I mean, how do you have the climate where all 10 leave as quickly as they can? I don't know how many went back in some kind of a relationship or what kind of a relationship they had. I just know that this is the kind of thing that wants to make me as a father and a grandfather cry. Jesus himself used the word hypocrisy to describe that sort of thing. He gave an amazing message in, in Matthew 23. He actually called the, the spiritual leaders, hypocrites, to their faces Six times in one speech. And, then he, and he told them why. And so here's one of the examples. Verse 25. Now, if I stand there, I probably should move over and, and you can watch because I've got a, quite a number of ones for you to, to follow with. Now, are you all clear? Of, go to clear sight? Okay. What sorrow awaits you? Or in the old translations, woe unto you teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees first wash the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will become clean too. These were people who knew the requirements of the law. Some of these requirements were clearly inconvenient for them, They didn't like them, they didn't feel they really applied to them, and uh, they didn't do them, but they made lots of demands on the people. A dictionary definition of hypocrisy, this is called a simple dictionary definition. Hypocrisy is the behavior of people who do things that they tell other people not to do. That's a pretty simple definition. Hypocrisy is the behavior that does not agree with or match what someone claims to believe. And that's what Galatians 5, 1 to 12 is all about. Oren covered that last week. And uh, I'd like to pick up a key verse that he used because it leads into 13 to 26, which is my assignment for today. Verse 6 says, For when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there is no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. What is important is Faith expressing itself in love. Circumcision was a, 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 one of a number of religious practices they felt were essential for Christians. And they were willing to divide the church over it. But like the leaders of Jesus' day, they weren't consistent. And he said, what is really important, what's at the heart of it all, is faith. And that's faith in Jesus, personal faith in Jesus, not works. What is important is faith, expressing itself in love. Love for God, love for others, certainly. Because we think of the two most important commandments that Jesus said were the most important. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. These two commands are exact opposite of hypocrisy. In fact, the the opposite of hypocrisy is integrity. And integrity is as beautiful and attractive as hypocrisy is ugly. So Steve, Pastor Steve started this series in Galatians earlier this year, and he called it Freedom in Christ. So that's kind of the overall theme. And we have been hearing about how good the good news of the gospel is. So let's look at Galatians five thirteen to 26 and see what that contributes to the good news of the gospel. One day I asked a friend, I said, what is the good news that's given in your Bible? And uh, he said, without hesitation, he said, there is no good news, it's only about what we have to do. Well, he was so right because when the message is about what we have to do, it's not good news at all because who can live up to what we have to do? When can I, when can anyone be sure we've done enough? So here's the issue. In the light of the good news that Jesus died to bring us forgiveness for our sin, he died to bring us freedom from the law, how do we navigate this real world in which we live this real world of temptation and failure without being seen as hypocrites. In other words, how does freedom in Christ play out in the real world to produce people of integrity? The real world where where politics and connections often determine advancement rather than hard work and faithfulness. The world of marriage, where your spouse sees you at your worst and you can't get away with anything. The world of extended family, where it's often so hard for everyone to get along and, and you feel judged as a Christian if you're one of the only ones. The world of school, where cheaters seem to be the achievers and being honest puts you at a disadvantage. That's the real world. And there's so many opportunities to, to fail and offend and look like a hypocrite. Especially if people know me as a Christian. So what do we do? So in this section of Galatians 6, God gives his solution for hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is ugly, but it's not inevitable, even for sinners like us. Our church may be full of broken people finding healing, but it doesn't have to be full of hypocrites. Do you believe that? See, God's purpose is not just to forgive us. His purpose is to make us whole, to make us people of integrity, so we don't have to pretend or put on a front. That's what the church is really supposed to be about, a place where we can be real. So let me give you a definition of integrity. Integrity is the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles. It's moral uprightness. It's a state of being whole and undivided. So what's the solution for hypocrisy? Which is what I hope I've been leading you to, and I hope you've been tracking along with me. The solution centers on developing a healthy view of grace and freedom. That's it. We need to be developing a healthy understanding of grace and freedom. That's something that Velma's parents and the people of her church apparently did not have. Grace, just to talk about this a minute, grace tells me that I can be forgiven, that Christ forgives me. And when He forgives me, I am really forgiven. I don't have to carry my past like a burden. And freedom tells me that I'm not under the law. I don't have to keep a set of rules for God to accept me. Rules don't cut it. Now, there are two key words to this. It's developing and healthy. Developing because it's a process. Healthy because hypocrisy is dysfunctional and sick and needs to be healed. Now, stop and think about this a minute. Salvation is immediate. When I am forgiven by Jesus, I am forgiven. It's not a long process. It's immediate. But moving ahead to become whole or healthy is a process. When churches and people have this healthy view of grace and a healthy understanding of freedom, hypocrisy isn't a problem. It just simply isn't. And I hope as we continue on, you'll see, understand how that works. See, there's a special attraction in the people who demonstrate what it's like to live live successfully in a loving, caring group. Let's see what God says about it, how God fleshes this out. Verse 13, for you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but... I stop there and give you a chance to say, oh, I knew there was a catch to this freedom in Christ. Uh, you know, this but isn't a catch. It's part of the solution. The solution to hypocrisy is developing a healthy view of grace and a healthy view of freedom. So let's talk about freedom. What's a healthy view of freedom? Well, you know, there's no such thing as uninhibited freedom. Freedom always has logical limitations. Let's say the government of Canada passes new legislation which says something like this. We, the government of Canada, recognizing that laws are restricting, do hereby abolish all the laws on our books. You, the people of Canada, as of this day, July 10th, 2016, are hereby released to live in total freedom. Enjoy your freedom and take care of each other. Would that work? (laughs) Sure sounds good. (laughs) I'd love if it did. So, someone walking down your street, you left your garage door open, And they look in and see these wonderful tools that they just love to have. They look and you, the owner, aren't there to protect your property. They look around back and forth and grab it because there's no law against stealing. You have to protect it yourself. Someone else takes a shine to your beautiful daughter as she walks to school and he begins stalking her and assaults her. You, her father or mother or brother, could be any member of the family, aren't there to protect her. There's no law against sexual harassment or sexual assault, so he takes advantage. See, of course, the result of such unlimited and uninhibited freedom is that none of us would experience freedom anymore. Freedom comes within laws that make for freedom. And we'd always live under the fear that someone stronger than me might come along and do one of these things to me or something worse. So, let's go back again. I said that developing a healthy view of grace and freedom is a process. And Galatians 5 goes into the process. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but... the. The first part of the, you know, think process again. There are limitations to Christian freedom. Embrace them. Don't resist them. If I want to grow as a Christ follower, it's important that I see the limitations to my freedom as good and healthy and expressions of God's heart for my good. So then he goes on to give some examples of the limitations. See if you agree. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but do not use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Older translations say to indulge yourself. Christian freedom is not freedom to indulge myself. If I indulge myself, I go back to destroying myself just like I was doing before I came to Christ. Those who use their freedom to indulge themselves, to indulge their hungers, actually end up slaves to their hungers. It doesn't matter whether it's drugs or unlimited sex or alcohol or a whole bunch of other things. When we indulge in them, we become slaves to them. Always. There's no exception to that. If I say I'm forgiven of all my sin and I'm going to heaven for sure so I'm free to live how I want, to indulge myself in all these fun things that people around me are doing, I end up a slave. the sinful habits. What kind of a salvation is that? And it's hypocritical to claim salvation and to live like that. Another example of the limitation, he goes on, for you've been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but do not use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Christian freedom is not freedom to exploit others. We know that those who exploit others always destroy relationships and make enemies. Exploitation is ugly. Nobody likes to see that. Nobody likes to see somebody treat somebody else when they have an advantage and take that advantage. Our freedom is a wonderful freedom that we can approach God without fear. Jesus died on the cross to cover my sin and I'm free. This is not freedom to exploit my neighbor and get whatever I can out of him or her. This is not freedom to exploit my wife or for you to explo- exploit your husband and take advantage of them. We, as followers of Jesus, are not to use people as objects, but to look for ways to serve them. That's what our freedom is given for. If we sincerely love Jesus and recognize the great gift of his forgiveness, we simply won't exploit each other. Serving in a, one, in a loving way is always adm- admirable. I think people always look up to those who generously serve each other, and they don't call them hypocrites. Another example of the limitation as he moves along and develops the process, verse 14, for the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor, as yourself. Christian freedom is not freedom to ignore the needs of others, to live selfishly and ignore the needs of others. Everyone admires someone who uh, genuinely loves his neighbor. And not just the physical neighbors, but the people they meet. And and we admire it when people do that freely and and generously. Everyone loves the story of the Good Samaritan. You know, here's somebody who stopped. And help someone. They didn't have to. And the ones before them didn't do it. Love like that, and you won't be called a hypocrite. Even though you're not perfect, and I'm not perfect. So, again, I want to keep coming back to this. Developing a healthy view of grace and freedom is a process. The process continues with a new way to look at sin. A healthy way to look at sin, if I might put it that way. That comes when I acknowledge the wide scope of sin and how easily it's expressed. What he calls in in, uh, this passage, the desires of your sinful nature. So acknowledge the wide scope of sin and take them all into account. That's kind of what I want to say. Why do I say that? Because God in his grace wants to protect you from all of them. Here's the danger. It's so easy for us Christians to be selective and to feel smug about how good we are when we compare ourselves to others. We emphasize a part of the list that we agree with or were raised with and raised to avoid and largely ignore the others, especially the ones that are somewhat accepted in society. And that, all, that does... Give birth to the ugliness of of hypocrisy. So, what does this this, uh, sin or desires of your sinful nature look like? What are some examples? How is it expressed in real life? Well, he goes on to talk about this. Verse 19 The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. What he says, we'll read them now and we'll see how many you think are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, and I put in brackets what some of the older translations say, sorcery or witchcraft. Uh, Yeah, I think we'd probably all agree on that for sure. Hostility, hatred, a little more dicey, quarreling, discord, what I contribute to that. Jealousy, outbursts of anger, you know, fits of rage is another way it's translated. You know, many people nowadays have anger issues, even Christians, unfortunately. Selfish ambition, dissensions, divisions, that faction being, being a divisive person, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, orgies, and other sins like these. And he says, let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of a life will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying that these are characteristics of hell, not heaven. So why would I want to excuse or overlook any of them? I could fall and fail at any of them, and I do fail. So we need to lay that out. That isn't the issue. The issue isn't, do I fail at these? The issue isn't about pulling up my socks and saying, oh boy, here's a list of the things that if I avoid all of these, I'll I'll please God and go to heaven. Christ died to pay for that. That's good. We don't have to. But if I overlook my issues and condemn your issues, I'm a hypocrite. If I overlook my sins, the sins that particularly have entrapped me and refused to deal with them, but condemn yours, I'm a hypocrite. That truth humbles me before God and certainly makes me much slower to criticize. Do you know of anybody who would call you or me a hypocrite if they see us humbly acknowledge from time to time that I too am a sinner? that the sin list includes sins that entrap me, that there are sins that I'm used to, I put up with. They're common in our culture, and I need cleansing from them. So it's an important biblical truth that sin includes a wide scope of issues, of failures, not just sensual activities. And when I see that... I too am guilty. I too need cleansing. I too need to grow. There's one more part to the process. So I'm not trying to give you a whole bunch of points as much as just the overview of the process given here. So we're to, he's challenging us to embrace the limitations to Christian freedom as good, not fight them and say, oh, now I don't have freedom. He challenges us to acknowledge that I sin too and so not be so hard on others who sin maybe in a way that really offends me. The third one, and uh, this doesn't work without the third one. Submit to God. Submit to the Holy Spirit and cultivate the fruit that he plants in your heart. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. When He's allowed to guide our lives, He produces fruit. We get to cultivate that fruit, or to smother it, if that's what we should choose. We're not ordered to manufacture it. Works can be manufactured, fruits grow. Out of a life. That's why the Bible doesn't say to do the works of the Spirit. It says the uh, fruits of the Spirit. Each of these is a product of one's relationship with God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. I can cultivate and nurture them. I, can, I can't create or manufacture them and say, okay, I've just been challenged at church today. I'm going to go out and I'm going to do these things. I can cultivate them by reading God's word. That is, not just reading it, but reading it with openness. Like, what's God saying to me? Asking God to speak to me. Asking the Holy Spirit to work in my heart to change me. So, verse 22. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Isn't that a great list? There's no law against such things, he says. (laughs) I'd agree. This is what God is working to produce in your life and my life. So I suppose I'd ask it this way. Have you been fighting and struggling to be good, trying hard, Placing demands on yourself and on others. Criticizing them for their failures. The message of Galatians is for you. It's good news. If you've accepted Jesus as your savior, you're free. Not free to be selfish and lawless and ugly to those around you. But free to be forgiven and growing and developing. According to the scripture, there's no quick fix to hypocrisy. It's a process. Be patient with those around you. Be patient with yourself. It's a process. This is not like a list of things we have to do or laws we have to keep, like my friend who who talked about his Koran. This is humbling, humbly submitting to a process. It centers on developing a healthy view of grace and of freedom. It centers on us as broken, redeemed people developing a healthy view of grace and freedom. That's a process. And it can only be walked humbly with the people in our life, with our brothers and sisters in the church, with our family members. You know, and I know that there always has been and is lots of complaints about the church in general. Imagine for a moment, what could our church be like if we treated each other with love and encouragement, with patience and kindness? How would that help other people to feel at home and possibly respond to Jesus because they see that attractiveness of what his dying on the cross does for us and did for us? What could our families be like If I, as a Christ follower, and I may, when I say if I, that could be father or mother, one of the children, son or daughter, it's got to start somewhere, you know. If I determined to submit to the Lord and bring the fruits of the Spirit into the home through me, instead of expressing my usual anger or sarcasm or criticism, venting out and letting the chips fall where they may, I humbly go back to the person and express my sorrow for acting that way. Ask for forgiveness. All the time. No? Many times if you need it. Many times if I need it. What would that do for family life? Do you think our families would call the parents hypocrites? Do you think that would give a Would there be a lot of healing going on? What could it be like in our culture if all the people who call themselves Christians, at least all of us here, so we're the ones talking about it today, seriously cultivated and opened ourselves up to and prayed for the development of these gifts, these fruits to take place in our lives? What could happen? So I'd like to leave you with an assignment. Every day this week, read this list. Of the fruits of the Spirit. Small list. Maybe you need to write it on a paper and carry it in your pocket. You read it more than once. And by the end of the week, I think you'll have it memorized. Make that a goal, at least. And uh, ask the Lord which of these he wants to focus on now in your life. But even just going over it, you know, the fruits of the Spirit. And as you go over the list, it's just like, wow, Lord, I want to be part of this process. I, I, I want to make a difference, not because I'm Sinless, because I certainly am not and never will be. Not because I have it all together. I never... I'm not and I won't in that sense. But I want to be part of the process. The process that God is doing. The process that helps me to view grace and freedom in a healthy way. Not a controlling way. Heavenly Father... Um, you've spoken strongly to me as I've worked on this message, and I pray that Your Spirit will speak strongly to everyone here in the area that would encourage them. I know that You intend this to be cur- encouraging because it comes from grace, not from having to do stuff. And I pray that we will be encouraged to follow You and to to watch for the ways You're working in our lives. And cooperate with them. In Jesus' name. Amen. And now I'm like a child and I do never rise to think of why. We're free to love and live and die, and there's no need to justify.